In many parts of the country, COVID infections are surging again with hospitals in many places strained to their limits. What explains this resurgence and what are the best tools at our disposal for bringing it to an end? Welcome to New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today, we are going to discuss exactly that topic under the heading of vaccines versus the Delta variant. And we're pleased to be interviewing uh, Dr. Amish Adolgis, an expert on the subject. My name is Ben Baer, a fellow and instructor at ARI. Uh, Amish Adolja is a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security. His work has focused on emerging infectious diseases, pandemic preparedness, and biosecurity. He actively practices infectious disease, critical care, and emergency medicine in Pittsburgh. You've probably also seen him on many network news interviews recently. Hi, Amish. Thanks for joining us today. Sure. Thanks for having me. So it's true we are undergoing a new COVID surge uh, here in Texas. The uh, many of the hospitals are at their extreme limits. They've 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 surpassed uh, earlier ICU capacities. We haven't yet quite gotten to the record number of cases that we saw in January. But in other parts of the country, I know they've uh, exceeded those records. Places like Florida, places like Louisiana. And uh, what we hear in the media is that it's the Delta variant uh, that is responsible for this surge. So just to get some background on this subject, on the, on the science here, uh, Dr. Adolja, could you tell us more about what this Delta variant actually is? Uh, and, and how common is it for uh, infectious diseases, for viruses to have variants like this that are responsible for subsequent waves of infection? So the Delta variant is a version of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, that's accumulated a cluster of mutations. And what those mutations do is make it a more fit virus. It's a, a fitter version than prior variants and the original version of the virus. And what that translates into is it's more infectious. It's probably about twice as contagious as the alpha variant or, the, or maybe even the original the version of the virus. So it's, it's something that is less forgiving. If you're somebody that's not immune to this virus and you're exposed to it, it transmits more efficiently. People may have higher viral loads and quicker, uh, and a quicker spike in the viral load so they become infectious earlier. And what that means is it's going to lead to more infections over time than other versions. So if you're an unvaccinated individual, the Delta variant basically will, will find you. And it's important to remember that all viruses mutate, especially viruses whose genetic material is made of RNA, like, like coronaviruses. And there's been lots of variants that have been kind of spun out during this pandemic, the alpha, beta, gamma, epsilon. There's a, there's a whole host of them. And they all have different characteristics in terms of transmissibility. And we're going to continue to see variants. And there are many variants you don't even know the names of because they didn't really rise to the, to the level of being considered a, a variant of interest. But that's going to be the norm. But what's important to know about the variants is that we have a tool in hand in order to stop their ability to cause harm. And that's the vaccine. That's where the Delta variant really is that's why it's really a pandemic of the unvaccinated because that's what the Delta variant is finding easy to infect. It's the unvaccinated and where there are swaths of unvaccinated patients or people, you're going to see the Delta variant pick up and cause major problems. So you've, you've been a proponent of the vaccines and I've heard you argue in the past that with the onset of vaccination around the country and around the world that uh, there's been a decoupling between COVID infection rates on the one hand and hospitalization and death on the other. Do you think that's still true in light of what we're seeing with the, with the Delta variant surge? It, it, it is true depending upon where you're looking at. So if you look at aggregate data, you probably don't see that decoupling. But if you look, for example, where I am in Pittsburgh, we've got cases of Delta variant out there, but our hospitals are nowhere near what they were for example, in December of, of 2021, when it was uh, of 2021, it was basically hellish to work in them when we were busting at the seams. And that's because enough high-risk individuals have gotten vaccinated in some parts of the country. So there it has been regional decoupling. So the Northeast, for example, I, I don't think we see that same stress that you're seeing in in the in the South. The last time I checked, there's 
I think eight states that, that constitute 50% of all hospitalizations. So clearly there's not decoupling in Texas and Florida and Mississippi and Louisiana and Arkansas and Georgia. But there, there, are, there is decoupling in Pennsylvania, New York, Massachusetts because of how, who got vaccinated and who's at risk for hospitalization. So I, I do think it still holds. It's just not visible when you look at it at, at the whole country because there's these, these, the hot spots in the United States are very hot and the other places aren't making headlines because things are going okay. And I think that's, I think that's what we would expect to see because it's not a heterogeneous, it's not a homogenous outbreak, it's very heterogeneous. And it really is a, a pandemic, like I said, of the unvaccinated and you're gonna see this regionalization. It's no longer a systemic threat in the United States, but a definitely a major regional threat. So if it's vaccination rates that are really the, the differentiating factor here, uh, what's the prognosis? Uh, I've seen some stories that indicate vaccination rates are increasing, at least even in some of the places that had not been as vaccinated. Is that going to be able to uh, eventually break this wave? Uh, how long do you expect this surge to last in the United States? More vaccines certainly will, will only help, but you have to remember that the big threat here is hospital issues and hospitalizations lag cases. So even if people start getting vaccinated and cases go down, it's going to take some time for the hospitals to decant. So it's going to be rough going in, in hospitals in, in Texas, for example, for, for several more weeks. However, um, what we see with the Delta variant is that it tends to spike fast and tends to kind of extinguish. And, and that was what we saw in India, for example, where they clearly didn't get enough people, they didn't get enough vaccine into people to do that. And there wasn't enough of the population infected, but it sort of goes back to this idea with infectious disease, this 20, or 80, 20 rule that 80% that of infections are caused by 20% of the people. So it's kind of those super spreaders. And if they all get infected, then you start to see cases fall once they're all, they've all been infected. And we are definitely seeing kind of a turn in some of the cases in, for example, Missouri, which was hard hit, was one of the very first places that got hit really hard with the Delta variant. They've now had cases fall. Cases are starting to fall in other, other states as well, which is probably reflecting of, of the, reflective of the fact that the people who are the most likely to spread it have gotten infected. So now that's gonna decrease cases. So I do think probably in a couple of weeks, we will see Delta's peak be peaked and coming down but again, it's gonna leave a lot of uh, damage in its wake in those places where high-risk people aren't, aren't uh, vaccinated. And it's gonna take some time to see that translate into hospitals being able to breathe a little freely in the South. I think a lot of people have been frustrated, not only about the actual resurgence of the virus, but also about the guidance coming from uh, medical and government authorities about what to do about it. Uh, notably in the last few weeks, the CDC, which had previously been uh, recommending that even that vaccinated people did not need to wear masks, changed their advice to indicate even the vaccinated needed to start wearing masks. And it, it seems from various uh, reports that we've gotten from the, in, the inside that what prompted that decision was data about breakthrough infections, even among the vaccinated, like at the, uh, the Provincetown Festival in Massachusetts. What's your take on that decision to change the advice uh, in light of uh, data about breakthrough infections? What can you say more generally about breakthrough infections and how uh, concerned we should be about that? So first on the concept of breakthrough infections, I think it's sort of a, a, a bad word to use because it connotes that the vaccine is failing. And remember, Vaccines are not bug zappers. They're not force fields. They're not meant to stop every infection. They're meant to stop serious disease, hospitalization, and death. And we always expected breakthrough infections to occur. This is a virus that's established itself in the human population. It's not going anywhere. And I think everybody is eventually going to get infected, whether it's a breakthrough infection or a natural infection pre-vaccine. And you can rest assured if you're a vaccinated person that your breakthrough infection is gonna be mild. So it's much better to get infected after you've been vaccinated than before being vaccinated. And that's the goal, to tame the virus, to make it more like other respiratory viruses that we deal with. Now, the, the, the CDC guidance was something I disagreed with strongly all over the, the media. And one of the chief reasons I, I have two, two main things. No, number one is we're still in a, in a pandemic of the unvaccinated that, the CDC director Walensky said that what happened in Providencetown in the data was a rare occurrence that's not driving transmission and it's not something that occurs routinely. 
So that to me was something that you would might give a warning saying, yes, there, is, there has been some breakthrough infection and some breakthrough transmission and some of those individuals might have similar amounts of virus in their nose detected by PCR as an unvaccinated individual. So if you're immunosuppressed, uh, you might want to be careful when you're in high risk environments. Number two is that they took something that happened during a festival in Providence Town, which is not extrapolable outside of that context because this was a very high risk indoor drinking, singing, a lot of a lot of kind of partying going on there. And it's not something that's applicable to the day-to-day -day life of the average fully vaccinated person unless they're going to frat parties every day or something like that. So I don't think that you can take that and, and then write a whole guidance based upon it. So, so that's kind of where, where I think that, that that guidance was faltered. And I don't think if every vaccinated person started wearing masks tomorrow, Mississippi would still be hell because they're, they're, it's the unvaccinated driving transmission, not the vaccinated. And, I, and you also have to remember that when you get a breakthrough infection, it's mild, like the common cold for the vast majority of people. I don't think we want to be in a business of stopping common colds from occurring in vaccinated people. There's little value to that. I think what we want to really focus on are the problems we're seeing in the South where hospitals are in trouble. And I don't think the CDC guidance does anything other than create more acrimony and fighting over, over guidance. It could have just been an advisory. It could have been handled a lot better. I think the CDC's had major public health communications problems throughout this pandemic, and, and that guidance change was, was another one. Yeah, I read uh, an article in the Atlantic that said that of the 374 fully vaccinated people who were infected in Provincetown, only four were hospitalized and none died. And that's a piece of context you don't often hear about that story. Um, right. So Pro ask Provincetown, I was just going to say that Provincetown is an example of the vaccine's success. We should be cheering the Provincetown events because it showed the vaccines under extreme stress with the Delta variant in this type of party environment indoors they held really, really well. But that's not the headline that you saw from the press. It was looked at as evidence of the vaccine's failure. And I think it was evidence of the press's failure on this. I wanted to um, ask a follow-up too on your comment that the vaccines are not bug zappers, which is a, which is a nice metaphor. Uh, there's an argument that you often hear in online discussions to the effect of, if it's not, if it's not a bug zapper, it's not even a true vaccine. Could you comment on that argument? I, it's completely, there's, I don't think there's any, any validity to it because that's not what vaccines are meant to do. Each vaccine has a different role depending upon the disease that you're talking about. But the, the overall goal of a vaccine is to decrease the morbidity, the mortality of an infection. And that, can some, that, that may not be achieved by, or may not be possible to, to cause what's called sterilizing immunity where, where it's, you're kind of have this force field around you. That's just not how, vaccines work. Many vaccines, what they do is they create immunity and your immune system has to actually know something's going on for it to kick into action. So a lot of times what you'll see is a small level of replication of the virus or whatever it is you're vaccinating against. And then the immune system kicks in and, and attenuates it or aborts what's happening. That's how a vaccine works. It's not, it's not the same thing like as a as a like I, I think a force field that, that bug zapper that's what people think about that they think that this is something that makes the virus just bounce right off you that's not how the immune system works it springs into action once there's been some evidence that you've been infected it's not like the the immune system isn't something with binoculars that can kind of send a drone strike ahead of time it waits till you actually get infected and gets alerted and i don't think that that's any kind of failure of vaccines that's how they that's how they work and that's what we want them to do is to 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 build on the immunity and this, the immune system that we have and just bring it into action to stop anything bad from happening with whatever infection you have. That's all we've ever asked of these vaccines. And on that, by that measure, they're performing off the scales. I, I worked in the hospital yesterday, every COVID patient I saw not vaccinated. You, you commented also a moment ago on what you thought was a failure of the CDC's messaging regarding masking. Let's move now to the Biden administration's uh, recent decision about what to recommend with regard to booster shots. They, they recently decided that they would recommend a third booster shot for all uh, eligible Americans, uh, I, I believe starting in a month or so, uh, eight months after their second shot. Do you think that the Biden administration's right to recommend this? No, I, I don't think they're right to recommend this because I don't think there's been data to show that this is necessary. 
And the whole process was a little bit different than we've seen with other decisions regarding vaccines, because there is a process with this, with this advisory committee to the CDC called the ACIP, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, which kind of look, at through, look through the clinical data, weigh it, sift through it, and vote. This came from the White House directly, which was highly irregular and very different than what we've seen. To me, as I said earlier, the threshold for saying you need a booster is you see people that are fully vaccinated having breakthrough infections that are severe enough to land them in the hospital. That's just not happening. And there's nothing magical about eight months. I'm not sure where that number comes from. Yes, we've seen antibody levels fall. We have seen breakthrough infections occur, but they're all mild. And I don't know that we want to be in the business of chasing common colds in fully vaccinated individuals. There definitely may come a time where we need booster vaccines because the erosion against severe disease is starting to, to whittle away, but it's not now. And the CDC hasn't, the White House did not provide any data to show that, that we're seeing hospitalizations increase to an alarming level in the vaccinated population, which is the very opposite of what they did a couple of weeks prior when they, when they approved the third dose for immunosuppressed populations. It wasn't just antibody data. It was actually looking at hospitalizations that were occurring in the fully vaccinated and seeing that immunocompromised patients were overrepresented there. That's where that data came. That's that, that data then was then married with the antibody data. And then they made a clinical decision, not the White House, but the CDC and the ACIP. And that's the usual way that this happened. So to me, this is something that I don't think was, was necessary. I think it's great that they're being proactive about boosters and, and thinking about the plan to deliver them, but I don't think that we're ready to pull the trigger now. It's going to be interesting to see this debate play out because the Biden administration was taken off guard by all the pushback they got from the infectious disease community saying, where's the clinical data? It was, it was really uh, very, almost, I would say almost unanimous amongst my colleagues saying that there's no data to support this recommendation. And it actually increases vaccine hesitancy because some people are saying, well, why should I even get a vaccine if I've got to get another one in eight, eight months? And I think we've got to step back and say, what do we want a vaccine to do? And, and that's prevent serious disease. And by that measure, there's no, no, no indication in the healthy population for a vaccine at, at, eight, at eight months. In the healthy population, are there any subsets of the population that you think could stand to get a booster shot, uh, or maybe not just based on their health condition, but perhaps based on the what kind of shot they had the first time. Like the Johnson and Johnson uh, shot is one I hear questions about. Do I need to get a booster if I only got the one shot from J and J? So we talked a little bit about the immunosuppressed population a minute ago, and, and that people call it a booster for the immunosuppressed. And, and my mom is somebody who takes a drug called Humira, so she got her third dose. That's not really a booster. That's actually a modification of the primary series. So now the new recommendation is if you're somebody on an immune suppressing medication or you had an organ transplant, instead of getting the two-dose regimen of the mRNA vaccines, you need to get three. So that's a modification of the primary series. That, that was driven by data and, and actually makes sense. There is an argument to be made, maybe amongst nursing home patients, maybe among those that are very, very elderly, that they may, they may need the, a third dose booster in a, at a shorter time period because they may not have responded as well and they're at high risk. But I think that, again, this has to be data-driven and have, have clinical data. But outside of that population, the immunosuppressed, those individuals that are frail or living in nursing homes, I don't know that there's enough data to be able to say that for sure. When it comes to the J&J &J vaccine, and it's in the news again today because they, their two-dose study uh, is starting to, to report some data, uh, obviously that it's, it's not um, surprising that they saw a boost in antibody levels after a second dose. But again, we haven't seen erosion of the J&J &J vaccine in terms of severe disease and hospitalization in vaccinated people. And, and I keep coming back to that because that's my threshold. And we would have detected it right away because J&J &J is the least frequently used vaccine. So if we all, it would be very easy to notice if we saw a signal there. And I think it's holding up well. But, it, but I think we have to have a discussion societally about where we go with this pandemic because if fully vaccinated people are getting mild illness and that's what we're going to start focusing on, I think that's a totally different uh, prospect than trying to prevent people from getting severe complications, preventing hospitals from getting crushed and preventing people from die, not dying, which I think is what we really should be focused on. And, and I think that's what should condition the booster discussion, but it, it's obviously not, at least at the White House. Let's shift to another population that uh, a lot of people care about right now, especially because it's back to school. Uh, this is the back to school season and a lot of kids are going back to school. Parents are, uh, many parents are worried about what this means for their exposure to the virus. What's the latest data on how this Delta surge is affecting uh, young children? Earlier on in the pandemic, I think it was sort of conventional wisdom that children 
didn't really get sick too often from COVID, but now we're hearing at least a lot of anecdotal reports uh, that more children are entering ICUs. We're hearing stories about children's hospitals who are filling up. Uh, is this simply anecdotal? Do we have any solid data on whether Delta is more dangerous uh, for children or is it simply an artifact of its being more infectious and therefore affecting more children as it's affecting more of everybody? the latter. So remember, the Delta variant is going to look for unvaccinated people if we can kind of anthropomorphize it. If you're unvaccinated, you're going to get infected with the Delta variant. And it just so happens that children under the age of 12 are not eligible to be vaccinated, and children between the ages of 12 and 17 are under-vaccinated. So they're getting infected because the Delta variant is finding them, and they're, and they're unvaccinated, so they're going to get infected. That's largely what's driving it. There's no clear evidence that this is more severe in children. It's just that they're more likely to, to get it because they're not vaccinated. And remember, many children are back to their activities because they are spared from severe disease, spared from hospitalization, spared from death. So they're out there at summer camps, doing sports, hanging out with their friends. So they're, they're doing more higher risk activities because they got a bigger cushion than a 70 year old that's not vaccinated doing it. So, so that's what's happening. And when it comes, so, so some of those cases are gonna translate into hospitalizations, but it's very rare that a child gets hospitalized. It's even rare that a, that a child dies from this, although it does occur, it's not zero, but it's on the level for a child, um, it, it's, the risk is lower than that for influenza or for RSV, which is a, a major scourge of, of, pediat uh, of pediatric life. When it comes to the hospitals, hospitals are, are seeing an increase in hospitalizations, but it's not necessary. And the ones that you're seeing under stress, it's primarily actually because of RSV, because there is an RSV outbreak going on in the South as well. So those ICUs are getting filled with RSV patients and then some COVID patients. So it's, it's kind of uh, primarily an RSV problem with COVID on top of it. That's, what's, that's actually what's causing them to, to worry about capacity. But it's not necessarily something, I think it's, it's not something systemic. It's not going on here in Pittsburgh. I, I actually, when I saw these things, I, I immediately uh, got in touch with one of my pediatric infectious disease colleagues. And, and it's not the case everywhere, but it's more an artifact of who's not vaccinated. And I think that's why it's really important to remember that this Delta variant is not forgiving if you are not vaccinated, it will find you. So you, you mentioned that part of the reason why we're seeing more uh, children being infected is, is, is that they're not vaccinated, they're not allowed to be vaccinated yet under the age of 12, which I think in many people's minds raises the question of how soon might we expect them to be I heard a story, I think today, from someone at the FDA saying there wasn't a chance of their being approved until perhaps December. What is the latest data that we have on the trials for the vaccine among children? And, and uh, how likely do you think that it's going to be approved at that point? So the, the way that they're doing this is two different age groups. They're doing five to 11 and then below the age of five. So the five to 11 group is kind of progressing along and they expected, I think, to read out by the end of this month, the FDA asked for more data or more people in the trial because they wanted to monitor for rare side effects like myocarditis, which had been associated with some of the mRNA vaccines in the past. And so now it's, it's, a, on the, it's a warning label uh, for, for this heart inflammation condition that occurred mostly in, in in teenage and younger adult male, males. So that's going to kind of put them back a, a little bit longer to get more people in that trial to, to survey for, for rare side effects. I suspect late fall would probably be the earliest time you might see an emergency use authorization filed for. And remember, it's not the FDA is not gonna do this proactively. Pfizer actually has to ask them to approve it. And I don't think Pfizer is gonna be ready uh, until, fall, until fall. And I think it's important to remember again that I think it's, it's the more vaccinated people are above the age of 12, the less we need to worry about those children because they're gonna be protected by the level of population immunity. And as you get to younger age groups, barring an immunosuppressed child or a child that has asthma or something like that, they're gonna be able to handle this in a way that's you know, very mild to, to them. Like I said, much less severe than influenza in someone less than the age of 12 or RSV in that, that age group. And I think we have to kind of ask ourselves, you know, what what, level of risk is tolerable, and it might be different for different parents and different depending upon the risk factors for the child and different depending on the activity. Is part of the reason why there is, why the vaccine has not been approved for children yet, and the reason they're taking more time on it, because children are, seem to be less susceptible to the negative effects of COVID, but the, the side effects are still there and the side effects are therefore a greater concern for them? Is that part of the reason? 
Definitely, because there's a different risk benefit calculation you have to do for every age group. And it's a very different prospect when you're saying vaccinate a 70 year old versus a 17 year old versus a seven year old. They all have different risks and benefits. And I think that's the important part of vaccines is that you have to look, you have to weigh the, the risks of disease versus the benefits of the vaccine versus the risks of the vaccine. And it's not necessarily, it's not obvious that it's the same for every age group. And it clearly hasn't been for COVID-19 where children are spared from severe disease. So it's a different calculation. And it does appear that you know certain side effects might be more prominent in younger age groups like myocarditis. So you wanna do this right. You don't want to erode confidence in the vaccine. So, so I think if you're a Pfizer, you want to make sure you're actually putting out a product that's that's going to be valuable to that group that you're putting it out for. And I think that that's sometimes lost in the discussion that, that we're, we're trying to, that there's a scientific process to do this. And, and a vaccine isn't something that you just approve and just give to everybody because everybody has a different risk for the, the severe disease, for, for severe disease and has different side effect profiles. And that's what this whole, whole process is about. And again, I think we can do this. We can open schools. We can do all of this safely, even if not, children under the age of 12 don't have access to the vaccine. We, we know how to do this. And I think uh, that it's sort of becoming a distraction. And in many other countries, they have open schools without vaccines. The WHO hasn't been someone that, they, they haven't been very enthusiastic about pediatric vaccination because they know it's not driving the trajectory of the pandemic. It's not what's causing the deaths in hospitals and crisis. So on that topic, uh, we, we got a question that came in through Zoom that I think is worth asking at this point. Someone asks, since there's no vaccine for children under 12, what are the parameters for when A, parents should keep their under 12 children home, B, schools should close the doors and go completely remote again? I would add to that, uh, what are your thoughts on whether parents should have their children wear masks? So, so this is a, a very complex question in a lot of aspects to it. So. I think if your child is a healthy child that doesn't have any other medical problems, I think you can basically within reason kind of let them go back to their pre-pandemic life and not be worried about school because if they get infected, it's likely to be mild. And the more, and you can also at the same time advocate that your school be very vaccinated where it can be and people above the age of 12 and, and teachers and other individuals. And I think that that's fine, especially the pedagogical part of school, sitting in class and at, at your desk. Where we saw schools run into issues with transmission were extracurricular activities like sports or cheerleading or choir or going to um, going to clandestine dances. That's where I think you have to you have to worry about it and be a little bit more um, more reticent about just kind of approving all of that without thinking through what's going on in your community in terms of how likely they are to get infected. I think that the I think schools are going to be putting in protocols for testing in that age group as well. And I think there's a lot of controversy now about what to do with masks in schools. And what I think is the best way to come about this is doing it with flexibility at the local level, because it's not going to be one size fits all. I think it, that you want a school superintendent to be able to say, this is what the transmission is like in our community. This is what our vaccination rate is in our school. This is the activity we're talking about. And then they make the decision based on all of that because there may be places where transmission is very well controlled and you're just talking about people sitting in class, that might be some place where you don't necessarily need to require masks, but then you have, you have you know, wrestling practice or you have some other type of activity and you've got widespread transmission outside the school doors, then the masks might be something, not necessarily that's gonna prevent severe disease because children aren't gonna get severe disease, but it's gonna keep people from getting infected and keep the schools from having to close or put people on quarantine or put people in isolation and then go virtual. Our goal has to be to keep in-person learning going the whole time through. In many other countries, we don't have the same debate because they're just saying no masks and we're gonna keep schools open because we know how to do this. But in the United States, we have a different risk mix here and it's, it's very hard, hard to do. So, so that's what I think it's really flexibility, but I don't think that schools will get a lot of value of all the vaccinated people wearing masks. And it operationally might be difficult for them to distinguish between vaccinated and unvaccinated. But I think it's going to be the unvaccinated populations that cause cases or drive cases. But again, it's flexibility. And I don't think what the, some of the governors are doing, blocking local school districts from doing things is the right way to do it. I think that makes it almost illegal to be safe or schools to actually respond to what's going on outside their doors. And I think that's the wrong way to do it. That's kind of erring on the opposite side of this. She said that one thing that schools could do, given that many of their students at least can't be vaccinated, is at least to take measures with regard to the vaccination of uh, their adult uh, staff. And I think that raises the question of uh, what are sometimes called vaccine mandates. I don't think that's the best 
uh, name for them. Uh, we did a previous episode on that. But what would you say, maybe shifting from the topic of schools for the moment to something you know even better, which is hospitals, what do you think about the wisdom of hospitals requiring their workers, their healthcare workers, to be vaccinated? And then is there any difference in uh, the calculus for school administrators requiring teachers? Of all the industries, I think the healthcare industry should be the one that's the most highly vaccinated because not only do we have the most knowledge about this issue, what COVID-19 is, what it can do, we've also seen firsthand how it destroyed our workplaces, destroyed our hospitals. So it's surprising to me that this has been so controversial with healthcare workers. If you look at physicians, 96% of us are fully vaccinated. But when you get to other, other professions, nurses, nurses' aides, paramedics, it, it drifts down. And I think that's not acceptable. I do think if you're a hospital, you need to mandate vaccination as a condition of employment. Not only does it set the right example, it makes your hospital much more resilient during this pandemic. I worked yesterday and they had to send so many people home on a floor because there was an exposure and there were unvaccinated healthcare workers there that are now at home, not working when we already have a staff shortage, staff shortages going on, burnout going on. And it's because people were not vaccinated. So if your hospital, if you want to, just from a hospital business perspective or operations perspective, it makes sense to have everybody vaccinated so you don't have to send people home so that you can continue to operate, especially as you're, as you're facing you know, more, more cases because of the Delta variant. So I think this should be, uh, this should be no, a no-brainer. We mandate hepatitis B vaccines as a condition of employment, tetanus vaccines, MMR, uh, influenza vaccines as a condition of employment. Uh, this one is arguably more important uh, than all of those. So I, I think this is something that should be done. And I think that when you look at other industries, the same applies, maybe not at the stakes are as high, but they still apply because you are. if you want your workforce to be resilient, if you want your workplace to be resilient and not have call-offs and have to deal with quarantines and contact tracing and all of that bureaucracy, the best way to do that is to have your employees fully vaccinated. I think that, that this should be something that any company rationally wants to do. And the fact that people don't want to get vaccinated, I think this is a, if you're in a company, you've got to think, do you really want to have that in your in your workplace? And I don't think there's anything wrong with private industry doing this and private businesses doing this. And I actually encourage them to do more of it. That's, I think, a helpful economic perspective on this issue that you don't often hear in this debate. So I want to uh, there's there's some more questions that we've been getting about uh, vaccines and uh, alternative treatments uh, for COVID, which we may get to uh, later. But I, I wanted to end my main line of questions by asking you a couple of questions about uh, how you, you yourself make decisions uh, in the face of this pandemic, in spite of the Delta variant and in spite of the fact that uh, Texas is kind of a hotspot for it you yourself are gonna be joining us in person at the Objectivist Conference in Austin, Texas in uh, less than a week. Uh, can you share with us how you made the calculation to decide to come to a live event like this in the middle of a surge? So I'm a fully vaccinated person. I don't have any other medical problems. I don't fall under any of the immunosuppressing conditions. And uh, I think that I've always advocated that once you're fully vaccinated, that the pandemic is largely over for you, that if you were to get one of those breakthrough infections, it's likely to be mild, like the common cold. And that's not something that I think you should, that you have to kind of weigh the risks and benefits. And I think the benefit of coming to something in person like this conference is outweighed by the risks of me getting a mild illness. Obviously there's other considerations of having a breakthrough infection that has me quarantine or isolate. And I, and I think that that risk is something manageable, especially when you put in mitigation measures, uh, for example, with requiring vaccination or requiring people to be tested. And also it's gonna take common sense. I don't think you probably see me in any, any very crowded area that I think that there's a high risk that I'm going to get infected in. I think it's something that people have to learn how to, to risk calculate. And I've been trying to risk calculate through the pandemic. I've never been somebody that advocated the abstinence only approach to uh, navigating COVID-19. I've always been somebody who advocated harm reduction trying to use risk calculations and tools to be able to, to minimize any damage that, that happens. And, and that's, uh, that's how I've made that decision. And I do think that the measures that have been put in place in Ocon will minimize that risk um, to, to a level that I think is acceptable. And, and I think that will allow a lot of people to, to come there with the peace of mind that it's, it's a, a relatively safe in, environment, at least within the confines of the conference. Yes, and just for anyone who's, who's watching and is unaware, 
uh, we did decide to uh, require a negative test on a rapid antigen infectiousness test for attendance at the conference, uh, not only at the beginning, but uh, I think 72 hours after people register. And then the, the way to waive that requirement is to show proof of vaccination. Uh, so we are definitely taking some mitigation efforts, which we think is the right and the safe thing to do. Um, now, I wanted to also ask you a question about the talk that you're going to be giving at the conference since it's related to the pandemic. It's called Looking Back on the Pandemic, What Went Wrong, What Went Right, and Why. Uh, do you want to share with our audience any highlights of what you plan to talk about on uh, what so day is of, that? It's uh, August 29th. Not, what I'm going to talk about is kind of just my bird's eye view of how the pandemic unfolded and, and where things went wrong and, and why they went wrong and how how it could have been done better. It's 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 almost more of like a cathartic experience when I was putting together the slides, just trying to remember everything because this has been everything I've done since January of 2020 has been COVID-19 related. And, and you forget things that happened when, until you actually start looking back at it. And I've been, so, so it's going to just be kind of taking major issues that happened in this pandemic, like testing or hospital capacity or the way politics got injected or the vaccine and trying to unpack all of that and have people understand what were the decisions that were being made? How could they have been made better? What went, what was, what was derailing it? What was underlying some of the motivations behind some of the guidance and how did the, how did our policy leaders how did they approach the pandemic? What explains their behavior in certain ways? All of that's kind of going to be bundled in there and hopefully it all flows and, and, and people come out of it with a, a richer understanding of the pandemic, whether or not they agree with my conclusions or, or not, but at least understand what was going on from somebody that was not only involved in the policy discussions, the media discussions, but also taking care of patients uh, from the very beginning. I imagine you're going to get a lot of interesting questions and it sounds like it's going to be a really fascinating kind of insider perspective overview on what we've all been dealing with for the last uh, year and a half. And uh, it'll be good to see you in person because I haven't seen you in person since before the pandemic. Um, let's, uh, let's transition to a few questions that we've gotten uh, while, while we've both been talking. And we really have a range of uh, different things that people are asking. Uh, one is a question that we did get a super chat donation about. So thank you for the donation. Uh, I don't know how many, if you want to answer all of these questions, but I'll throw a few at you and, and pick which ones you want, which ones you think are worth answering. Uh, some of these, I'm not even quite sure I know the terms involved. When do you think we can get Covaxin? Also, have you evaluated the effectiveness of ivermectin and fluvoxamine? Why the recent emphasis on youth vax. Uh, we already talked about the youth vaccination, so maybe the COVAX and ivermectin and uh, fluvoxamine, which I'm not sure what that is. I think the COVAX is the brand name for the AstraZeneca vaccine. I think that's, uh, if, if I'm correct, or is Isn't that the international uh, UN kind of branded? No, it's the company's name. It's either, it's either so off the top of my head, either I have to, COVAX is either the Indian vaccine or it's the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, what I would say is that we are going to see probably more vaccines be approved by by the FDA eventually. Right now, there's really not much room. We've got enough Pfizer, Moderna, and, and Johnson & Johnson to vaccinate the country multiple times over. And the FDA is sort of cl closing their emergency use pathway. So you may see some of these vaccines come through for full approval eventually, uh, maybe second generation vaccines, and we'll see comparative studies against the vaccine. I think it's important to remember that these three vaccines we have may not be the final answer to COVID. We may get something that's easier to give something that's part of routine childhood vaccination, something that we, um, something that can maybe be, doesn't have those cold storage requirements that Pfizer and Moderna has, something that might be single dose, all kinds of things are, are gonna come down the line with vaccine development, with vaccines that you haven't heard about. But uh, Covaxin, Covishield, all of these other vaccines are still kind of out there uh, and likely will have some role. But again, I think that, the, that they won't be part of the acute phase of the response to the pandemic in the United States. Um, Ivermectin. So ivermectin is an antiparasitic drug that people have been using uh, for scabies and other infectious diseases, which had some in vitro activity against COVID-19 and had been advocated by several physicians, some of whom are very prominent, as well as many countries in, in South America. 
what I would say is that the data on ivermectin does not support its use as a COVID-19 treatment or a preventative. And some of the studies had to be retracted because they were so poorly done. So there was very low confidence uh, in, in the use of ivermectin. And both the, the Infectious Disease Society of America does not recommend its use in guidance and the NIH does not recommend its use and guidance as well, because there's not really any good data. And there is a major trial going on in England that hopefully will put this to rest by doing it in a rigorous manner so that you can actually see whether or not it works. But what the danger is with ivermectin is that there are people who are using this or they have this in their cupboard and they think they don't need to get the vaccine. That's a poor choice, as is taking ivermectin and then not going to the doctor waiting for the ivermectin to kick in. That's also a poor choice. So I think this is a, another drug that I think got politicized and it's made it very, very difficult to actually talk rationally about it without getting attacked everywhere. Fluvoxamine, um, that's interesting that somebody asked that. So that, that's a, a drug um, that's an antidepressant drug used for things like obsessive compulsive disorder. And there was a randomized controlled trial that was very small that showed a benefit, but you can't take a small, so there is a promise with that drug, but it needs to be replicated in a larger trial uh, if, if it's going to have a use. And I think it is something that we should investigate much more thoroughly because we did see a positive signal it was published in a major journal in JAMA. And I think that's something that needs a lot more study, but I think there, there is maybe an avenue for its use in, in that situation. Is it your view that the ivermectin debate has, has basically turned into the same discussion we were having about hydroxychloroquine a few months ago, that it's been kind of politicized tribalistically by people who don't really know the medical issues here? Exactly. I think there's, there's actually, it's not quite as bad as hydroxychloroquine in terms of the, the clinical data and the, and the trials, but it's, it's taking that same flavor because you had Senator Johnson, uh, for example, I think from your home state, um, basically have, have a big hearing where a lot of misinformation came out and they actually kind of concocted this idea that there's a conspiracy theory to prevent people from prescribing ivermectin, which is not the case. It's just, a, it's not something they recommended. I would not prescribe it to my patients. And, and I think we need to see more, more data, but this is just another example of how politicians have, have turned this into something, some kind of a crisis that they don't want to waste and, and find some way to pander to whoever they're pandering to. And I think that's what's happened with ivermectin. And it takes long, it, it makes the whole process harder because then people don't even want to study it. People don't want to enroll in clinical trials for it. And then it takes us longer to get the definitive uh, word. And, and like with hydroxychloroquine, there were so many clinical trials that were done just to keep proving that it didn't work, how much effort was wasted that could have been put towards other treatments. Uh, but we really wanted to kind of beat a dead horse with hydroxychloroquine because it was such an important, it, it became such an important topic in the media. Uh, we also just got a couple of super chat donations, uh, which did not have a question attached to them, but just a, a thank you uh, to Dr. Adolja attached. So uh, thank you for those. Thank you for those donations. Here's a question that came in through Zoom that I've been hearing different versions of lately. Uh, why the vaccine mandate as opposed to proof of past COVID infection? Uh, or vaccine? Aren't natural antibodies as good or as or better than spike protein antibodies? So that's a good question. And I've been, so natural immunity after infection is not nothing. It, it does provide significant protection against reinfection and protection against severe disease. However, vaccine-induced immu immunity has been shown in clinical trials to be superior, more robust, more, pr more protective. And it may be because the concentrated effort the immune system makes against just the spike protein that's in the vaccines is, is more robust. And we saw this, for example, with the beta variant, which is kind of faded from headlines, but that was one that was called the South African variant before, where there were people who were getting reinfected at a higher rate than people who just had the J&J &J vaccine. So I, I think that natural immunity is something that's significant and should be considered, but it's not the same thing as vaccine-induced immunity. However, there are clinical trials that show if someone has had prior immunity, a single dose of vaccine, one with uh, one, one of the mRNA vaccines, Pfizer or Moderna, probably gives a vaccinated person, uh, uh, gives a, a prior immune person, someone with antibodies, enough immunity to be considered fully vaccinated. And I think this is something that should be in the CDC guidance because there are many vaccine hesitant people who are citing the fact that they have natural immunity. I worked with a doctor yesterday that that's why he's not been vaccinated, or at least that's what he says, why he's not been vaccinated. I think that telling people if you had prior COVID and have proof of do documentation of it with the PCR and antigen or an antibody test, 
one dose of the mRNA vaccines and you're considered fully vaccinated would move the needle, uh, that's, so to speak, with those people who have not been vaccinated because it's definitely, it definitely has a protective effect and I think it's being ignored uh, by the guidance and I think it's something where we have actual data to show that we can modify vaccination uh, requirements for those people with prior infection. Oh, just back on Covaxin. Covaxin is the Indian vaccine. I, I just, uh, I, Covishield is the AstraZeneca. Covaxin is the Indian vaccine. But just so that I, people know that I, just to clarify. It strikes me that this, uh, this question about natural immunity versus vaccination, there's a, there's a common theme here uh, in your answer compared to some of the other things that you've said, which is that, well, what makes something a vaccine isn't that it's a 100% it, bug zapper. It's about reducing your chances of a, a serious infection. And by the same token on this point, the idea, the issue is not that uh, vaccines are 100% and uh, natural immunity is zero. It's that they, there's simply a better chance of preventing serious infection with, with, with vaccines. Is that basically what you're saying? It's about harm mitigation as with all these other issues. Right. So the, if you have natural immunity, you're, you're in better shape than if you don't have natural immunity. But vaccine-induced immunity will build upon it and make it stronger, more robust, more predictable. And I think that's, that's what the goal is. And, and we can, we've seen reinfection rates that are higher than that, that can be mitigated by giving people just a single dose of the vaccine. So I think that's, that's how I think about it. And I, do, and I, and I am sympathetic that, that, the guidance, that the guidance is inadequate when it comes to people who had prior infection. Okay, let's uh, let's do just one more question. I know you have to do other interviews today. Uh, here's a question that came in from Zoom. Do we have any data on long COVID in breakthrough cases? The person says, I haven't heard anything about it so far. Should I be concerned about cognitive damage, loss of smell, other long-term damage from a breakthrough case? Presumably this is a fully vaccinated person who's asking the question. So breakthrough infections tend to be mild. People don't even know that they have them. And long COVID, I don't think is going to be something that we see happening to any high degree of frequency in fully vaccinated individuals. There's still a lot of mysteries to unravel about long COVID, who gets it, who's at risk for it, what the actual cause is. But most of the hypothesis center on the immune response being aberrant or, or off. And the thing is with these breakthrough infections, the immune system kicks in so fast that I don't think there's enough time for any of that to go wrong. I would just, the, the questioner asked about loss of taste and smell. That has occurred in breakthrough infections, but I distinguish loss of taste and smell from long COVID because when we really, what we need to do with long COVID is drill into what actually is debilitating, what actually interferes with your activities of daily living. And unless you are a, a chef or you're working in a, you make perfume or something, I don't know if loss of taste and smell can be considered debilitating because that tends to come back and, and it's, it's, not this, it's not of the same flavor as someone who cannot, not walk up the stairs anymore, who can't do, can't do math anymore. So I think there's a little bit of a separation of what symptoms actually should be classified as long COVID and which ones should not. Very good, thank you. Thank you for that. I think we can uh, start to wrap up. I'll start by just sharing some uh, resources uh, for anyone who'd like to know more about some of the things we've talked about today. So the Institute has uh, released a major white paper uh, on the sort of subject that I think Amish is going to be talking about at the conference, uh, what our response should have been to this pandemic in the first place. We released a white paper by Ankar Gatte, a, a pro-freedom approach to infectious disease. And you can go straight to that by uh, visiting bit.ly slash freedom hyphen infectious. Uh, I would also like to let people know about that conference that Dr. Dolge is going to be speaking at, uh, starts this coming Friday in Austin, Texas. Uh, and you can still register to attend virtually. There's a virtual pass, both virtual day passes and virtual week passes. Uh, this is going to be feature some of the top objectivist intellectuals in the country, talking about questions on philosophy, art, uh, literature, and in this case, uh, current events and their relation to science. Uh, you can register for that pass actually until September 30th. That's because you'll be able to register even after the fact and watch the videos, uh, recordings of the videos. This is actually going to be the first conference that we're doing that is fully online. In the past, we've put selected events from our conferences online that you can watch from a distance, but this time all of them are going to be there. All the breakout sessions, all the optional courses, even a couple that I'm doing, and you can register 
uh, at ocon.einran.org if you'd like to find out more about that. One other announcement uh, also related to the conference is that next week, our conference, uh, we're going to be doing New Ideal Live live from the conference. Uh, so that will be at a slightly different time of the day than usual. It will still be on Wednesday, uh, on Wednesday, September 1st. But because uh, the time slot for the opportunity to do this was earlier in the day, it's going to be 8.40 a.m. Central Daylight Time. Uh, it's 9.40 Eastern, pretty early if you're in Pacific time zone. But this will be a general Q&A on objectivist philosophy. Uh, I, Ankar Gatte, Aaron Smith, and Mike Mazza will all be sitting on a panel to answer any questions that you have about objectivism, about, uh, about uh, philosophy, about applications of objectivism to questions that you have in your everyday life. Uh, it'll go for about an hour, in, and we'll be taking questions not only from the live audience in Austin, but also from online. So uh, look for more information on uh, the, the social media broadcasts of that on the day that it occurs. That will be happening, um, and you'll be able to submit your questions through the usual channels. Zoom and Super Chat will be looking at that. So I think that wraps up with all of our announcements, except if you want to, if you like this episode and you'd like to follow us in the future, if you're watching on YouTube, please be sure to subscribe to the channel, click the bell to get notifications, like this episode. Uh, if you're watching the recording after the fact, be sure to comment on it. That helps optimize the algorithm in our favor. Same thing on Facebook. If you're watching on Facebook, like or comment on the episode, consider sharing it. And if you have questions about anything that we discussed today, or if you have suggestions for future episodes, consider sending us an email at newideal@einran.org. We read all of these, answer many, and sometimes we even do episodes on topics that were suggested by viewers. So thanks everyone for joining us today. Uh, thanks, Dr. Adolja. Uh, i looking forward to see, seeing you in person in Austin in just a few days. And uh, I hope to see everyone else uh, uh, on our next episode of New Ideal Wednesday, a week from today. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Andrew. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.